following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Luke 29-20, the parable of the tenants. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they could give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come to those and kill the tenants who give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of which it is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately. But they knew he had spoken his parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Thanks, Gwen. Good job, man. All right, so here we are back in the Gospel of Luke this morning, and uh, we come to another one of the parables this morning, the parables of Jesus. And uh, these, you know, as Jesus went around teaching and interacting with people all over Israel, the main teaching tool that he used was stories, right? So he, he would tell stories. We call them parables. And Jesus just told these stories about all sorts of everyday, ordinary things that people in the first century could relate to immediately. He told stories about sheep and trees and seeds and farms and managers and weddings and families and birds. and just It's the stuff of life, you know. Um, if he was here today, he'd probably tell the parable of the lost Lego piece or, you know, the, the parable of the good Australian or something like that, you know. <laughs> Something like that. Something we could all connect to and relate to immediately. You know, just normal stuff, everyday stuff. And so uh, this parable that we're looking at this morning, it's just like that. He tells this parable about a vineyard. And there were vineyards all over Israel. Still many of them there. But especially up in the north, in the Galilee area, these lush, fertile hills, you had all these vineyards. And so Jesus describes this vineyard. And uh, often in these vineyards, you'd have the owner of the vineyard who didn't live there. They'd live somewhere else, and they'd put the vineyard under the control of these tenants, tenant farmers, who would work the land, cultivate the harvest, and then there would be an agreed share of the fruit that they would be able to keep, and the landlord would take their share, and the tenants would pay rent to the landlord. It was a good arrangement. It happened all the time. People would have been very familiar with this. So this is the setting of the parable that we're looking at. Now, we need to understand, first of all, who represents who and what represents what in this parable. So the vineyard represents Israel. Okay, pretty straightforward. Uh, often in the Bible, Israel is described as a vineyard. You think about Isaiah, that's, that's a common image. Israel is the vineyard of God. So Israel's the vineyard, and God is the vineyard owner. 
the landowner, the landlord. He has established this vineyard. He's established Israel as his people. He set up the vineyard. And these tenants, the tenant farmers in the vineyard, these are the leaders of Israel. Okay, that's quite important. So those are the the leaders that God has placed over this nation, over this community to shepherd the people of God, to watch over them. Uh, Both in Jesus' day, the leaders of Israel in the first century, and as we will see, going back through the history of the Old Testament as well. So the tenants are the leaders of Israel. So that's kind of the setting that we have in this parable. Now, what happens is that at a certain point in time, verse 10 there, if you're following along, uh, the landowner sends one of his servants to the vineyard to see if there was any fruit that had been produced and to take the landlord's share of the fruit. So this was all very normal stuff. The servant would come and, and he'd be collecting the rent from the tenants and he'd be taking the agreed share of the fruit. Now, the servant who the landlord sends, this represents the prophet's of the Old Testament, not necessarily one particular prophet, but just the prophets that God sent over hundreds and hundreds of years. Prophets like Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, Obadiah, all those funny sounding books in the Old Testament. There's many, many prophets, major prophets and minor prophets. And these are, these are men that God sent to his people and to the leaders of Israel in the Old Testament, primarily to call the people back to the covenant to call the people back to faithfulness, to the covenant, to the law that God had given them, to remind them of their obligations under the covenant, to reiterate God's promises that he had made to the covenant, to talk about what God was yet to do, both good and bad in the future. And this was the role of the prophets. So this landowner sends his servants, the prophets, to the people of Israel, but then look at how they're treated. So halfway through verse 10, but the tenants beat him. And sent him away empty-handed. And so rather than welcoming the servant and paying the rent and getting on with it, these tenants beat the servant up and send him away with absolutely nothing. They treat him shamefully. And this represents the way that through the Old Testament, so often God sends the prophets to the people of Israel and they are rejected. And they speak to, often to the leaders of Israel, often to the kings. And they were despised very often. They were mocked. They were ridiculed. Sometimes they were put in jail. They were put in the stocks. They were thrown in in cisterns. They were imprisoned. They They were often, sometimes, killed. This happened. And so these prophets were persecuted. It was a hazardous job being a prophet in the Old Testament. You were very likely to be mistreated because they said things people didn't want to hear. They spoke of the importance of faithfulness to God. They called the people away from idolatry and towards commitment to the one true God. People didn't want to hear this. The leaders didn't want to hear this. So they mistreated the prophets. And so as the story goes on, the landowner then sends another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully. And then in verse 12, he sends a third. The same thing happens. They wound him and they throw him out. So Jesus is, is really with a very broad brushstroke, just telling the story of a lot of the Old Testament. He's telling the story of hundreds and hundreds of years when one after another God sent these prophets to his people and one after another they were rejected and rejected and rejected. The leaders of Israel didn't want to know. They weren't interested in what these men of God had to say and they despised their message. And so finally... Verse 13, the owner of the vineyard says, I know what I'm going to do. I will send my own son, whom I love. Do you hear that language from, sounds like John 3.16, doesn't it? My son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. And so, of course, the son represents who? 
Jesus, right? That's pretty obvious. So God now sends not just any old prophet, now he sends his one and only son into the world. Jesus really comes as the last in the line of the prophets, the final great prophet, but not just a messenger of the word of God. He was the one who embodies the word of God. He is the living word of God. That's why scripture says in the past, God spoke to us many times, many ways, but now he has spoken to us through his son. It's the culmination of years and centuries of prophecy. Now comes the son, the beloved son to speak to the people. He comes to call the people back to God. He comes to establish the kingdom of God. He comes to offer the invitation of eternal life. And what happens to him? Well, verse 14, when the tenants see him, they say, this is the heir. This is the heir to the throne. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. It's a bit hard to understand what they're doing in the context of a vineyard, isn't it? But the most likely theory is that these tenants see the son coming along, the son of the vineyard owner, and they think that maybe the vineyard owner's died. And so this is his son. So if we kill him, we could lay claim to the vineyard. If we can kill this, we basically wiped out the family, then we could put a stake in the ground and say, well, we'll just take control of the vineyard. It's a completely illegal thing to do, not to mention the fact it's immoral, but that's maybe what these tenants were thinking. And in the context of the story Jesus is telling, what's he saying? He has come into the world. He's called people back to God. And yet just like the prophets in the Old Testament, Jesus is being rejected. He's being rejected not only by the people of Israel, he's been rejected by the leaders, those who should know better, those who should recognize him. In fact, I think the fact that Jesus talks about these tenants saying this is the heir suggests that maybe at a deep level these leaders do recognize who he is, that they're able to see, but they refuse to accept him. They refuse to acknowledge who he is, and so they reject his message. They despise him just like they despised the prophets for centuries before him. And so Jesus then is looking ahead to say, here's what's going to happen. Just as it was in this parable, these Jewish leaders... They're going to eventually come up with these allegations against Jesus. They're going to hand him over to the authorities. Jesus is eventually going to be killed, going to be crucified. In an interesting kind of way here, Jesus himself is prophesying that he's looking ahead to his own death. He's talking about the death of the son. Well, that hadn't happened yet. So Jesus is speaking about his own death. And he's placing himself in that long line of those who had been mistreated and persecuted by the leaders of Israel. And so then he gets to the end of the parable and says, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 16, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And I think at this point, the people must have known what he was talking about and must have realized what he was saying because then they cry out in verse 16, they cry out, God forbid. They know he's talking about them. They know he's talking about their leaders and they realize this is a parable of judgment against the leaders of Israel It's a parable of judgment against the people of Israel. And Jesus is talking about the destruction of Israel, which was fulfilled in the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem in AD 70. And the people are crying out, God forbid, let this not happen to us. And so Jesus then in verse 17 turns around and it says he looks directly at them. Isn't that great? Jesus looks the people in the eye and he says this. Then what is the meaning of that which was written The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he's quoting there all the way back in the Psalms, Psalm 118. 
It's written hundreds of years before Jesus, but it's a messianic passage that points all the way to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Israel's king, the coming of Jesus, ultimately. And it describes him as the cornerstone, the cornerstone of a building. It's it's an architectural image. And the cornerstone in an ancient building, it's a bit different to today. If you have a cornerstone today, it's kind of largely ornamental. But in ancient construction, you'd have the, the cornerstone was the very first stone to be laid. So if, you, if you're constructing a building, you'd take the, the very first stone was very, very carefully selected. And the builders would carefully take the stone, often a very big stone, they would cut it extremely carefully, measure it extremely carefully, place it in the, in the corner of the building. It would become the first stone that was laid. It becomes then the first of the foundation of the building that goes down. And once that cornerstone is in place, everything else takes its cue from that stone. Every, every other stone in the building is then measured from that stone as the construction goes on. That's the fundamental stone in the whole building. When The positioning of that stone determines the direction of the building. Right, the aspect of the building is going to determine is be determined by where that stone is placed. So it's critically important that that stone is right, and everything then is built upon that cornerstone. Jesus is saying, "That's who I am." He's saying, "That's that's my identity." He's not being arrogant in saying that. He's just being true. He is the fundamental, most important, most foundational stone of the whole building. Now, just think about the ways in which that is true. Think about the ways in which Jesus is the cornerstone. First of all, he's the cornerstone of creation. Right? The Bible talks about this. Jesus is the one in whom all things are made. He's the one in whom all things are held together. Jesus was there at creation. We don't often think about Jesus at creation. We think about the Father. But Jesus was there. He was the one in whom, through whom, everything was made that is made. And even now in the present, Jesus, the Son of God, is holding all things together. Even as we sit here this morning, in some way we can't see, the Son of God is is holding and knitting all creation together. It's all being sustained in and through Jesus, the Son of God. He is the cornerstone of all creation, the one that this universe is constructed upon. He's the cornerstone. Secondly, he's the cornerstone of salvation. The whole biblical story, and we talk about this a lot at Shaw, the whole story from Genesis to Revelation, it all hinges on Jesus. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the center of the whole story of salvation. This is partly what Jesus' parable is about. Everything leading up to him has been pointing to him. All of the prophets had always pointed towards Jesus. Everything after him flows on from him. The salvation that God is outworking in the world comes in and through Jesus. There is no other name by which we can be saved. There is no other name by which we can receive eternal life. There is no other name under heaven or earth by which we can receive eternal life and be reconciled to the Father. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, but through him, he's the cornerstone of salvation. Thirdly, he's the cornerstone of humanity. Now think about this. We talk about being made in the image of God, right? This is a fundamental biblical truth that you and I are created in the image of God. But who is the image of God? Who in the Bible is described as the image of the invisible God? It's Jesus. He is the image 
He is the one who is perfectly made in the image of the Father. So when we're made in the image of God, we are made in the image of Jesus. He's the archetype of humanity. When you look at Jesus, you see what a truly human life looks like. You see real humanity. You see true humanity. You're looking at a a truly human person. So we were made in the image of Jesus. We're being transformed in the image of Jesus. One day we will be totally perfected in the image of Jesus and we will take on our true full humanity imaged upon Jesus' own true humanity. So he stands as the cornerstone of all humanity, the true image of God. And then finally, Jesus is the cornerstone of history. And you think even aside from biblical history, even aside from the salvation story, just thinking in terms of world history, secular history, Jesus is the cornerstone of human history. He has left an indelible mark upon the development of human culture and civilization and society. He wasn't much of a big deal in his own day. He was just a traveling rabbi who had a little band of followers and he traveled around saying a few things and then he got executed on a Roman cross. He never traveled outside of Israel. He never wrote a book. He was an obscure person in an obscure part of the world. But Jesus has had this unsurpassed influence on the whole trajectory of culture and human development and human civilization. Let me just give you one quick example of this. Think about the virtue of kindness. Kindness, right? So we've heard a lot about kindness this year with COVID. Our prime minister's talked a lot about kindness and we are exhorted to be a kind people towards one another. We hear this all the time. You see the COVID signs, be kind. And that, and that makes sense to us. We should be kind to each other. It's a virtue that makes sense. But you've got to ask yourself, where did kindness come from? Where did the virtue of kindness come from? I mean, it's, it's self-evident to us. It just seems like, well, that's, that's a course. That's what, that's what good people do. But it hasn't always been that way. If you think of the context of the first century, the Roman Empire was not exactly an empire built on kindness. It was an empire built on slavery and suffering and brutality and violence and bloodshed. That's how things work. Caesar is not going to stand up at a press conference and say, let's all be kind to each other. That's just not how the world worked. That's not how any ancient civilization worked. And yet Jesus, in the midst of a hostile culture, can stand up and say something like, treat others as you would have them treat you. That's kindness. Now, he wasn't the only one to talk about kindness, but he certainly lifted up that virtue far beyond what others had done. And in the midst of a brutal culture, he exalts this value of kindness. And so then kindness becomes part of the biblical story and it becomes part of the Christian tradition. And as the Christian movement grows and expands throughout the world, the virtue of kindness does the same. And then eventually it gets woven into the fabric of Western culture. So we get all the way down to today and our prime minister can stand up and talk about kindness and it makes sense to us. But it makes sense in view of Jesus. And this is true of so many things. The treatment of women, the treatment of children. You could look at human rights. Where do we get the idea that every human has equal dignity? Well, that didn't just drop out of heaven. Actually, it did. It was Jesus. I mean, these these ideas don't come from nowhere. They are embedded in the Judeo-Christian tradition. So all of of the virtue that we have today 
comes back to this man from Nazareth who lifts up these virtues and going back further into the biblical story, right back to human beings being made in the image of God. And then they eventually become part of the cultural fabric that we're living in today. But as Christians, we can look back and we can see this is the influence of Jesus on our culture. This is the incredible influence of this man. The tragedy is today that people don't acknowledge it. The tragedy is that we've missed it. One writer talks about how our culture today wants the kingdom without the king. There's certain values of the kingdom of God that people want because they're humanitarians. So we want well-being, we want human rights, we want compassion, we want dignity, and all those good things. We just don't want the king. We don't want the king who gave those virtues to us. That's the tragedy of Western culture. But this is the influence that Jesus has had. So he is the cornerstone, the cornerstone of creation, the cornerstone of salvation, the cornerstone of humanity, the cornerstone of history. And yet, as Jesus says, he is also the stone the builders rejected. This is the really sad part. But that was true in his day. He was the one that was rejected. He was rejected by his own people. He was rejected by his own leaders. And it's just as true in our day. Even after all the good that Jesus has done for human history, we live in a culture that has pushed him aside and wants nothing to do with him. He's just written off as a kind of mythical figure, this little religious person who's, who's just belongs to that little group of people there over in a corner. But he really is irrelevant and insignificant in terms of public space. And so Jesus is pushed aside by our culture. He continues to be rejected by our culture. And that's why what Jesus says ends on such a harsh note, because this passage of Christ being the cornerstone ultimately ends with a message of judgment and warning, where Jesus says in verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. That's a hard pill to swallow. But Jesus is saying there's going to be a day when he returns and he will come back as our king and he'll come back as our savior. He'll come back as our Lord, but he'll also come back as our judge. And that's, that's unavoidable. And one day Christ will come back and he will judge the world and every one of us will stand before him on that day and we'll give an account for ourselves. And the only thing that is going to matter on that day is what you have done with Jesus. The only thing that is going to stand on that day is what you've done with that man from Nazareth. It's not going to be about how, how good or bad you are or all the other things that you've built your life upon. It's not going to be about how moral or immoral you were or even all the religious ritual that you went through. It will come down to what you have done with Jesus of Nazareth. Whether you built your life upon him as the cornerstone, whether you made him the cornerstone, the foundation of your life, or whether you've resisted, 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 and rejected his love. And Jesus says, for those who have rejected me, the stone will be a stone that causes stumbling. It'll be a stone that causes people to fall. That stone eventually will be their undoing, and it will lead to eternal separation from him. I know that's not the part of the gospel we like to hear, but that's the whole counsel of God. That's part of the message, that Jesus is the cornerstone, but he's also the stone of destruction for those who ultimately refuse his offer of love. And so in view of that, I just, I just want to urge you today, if you're kind of thinking about Jesus a little bit and, and, and maybe taking some steps towards him or just kind of wondering about that, I want to encourage you today to give your life fully into his hands and build your life upon that cornerstone. If you've been on that journey for a little while, then make today the day. 
to accept Christ and what he's done for you, to receive his forgiveness and give your life fully into his hands. Make him the cornerstone of your life. And you might be here today, and most of you would be in this category, where at some point in your life, you've made that decision to be a Christian. And so you say, well, I'm, I'm good. You know, Jesus is the cornerstone of my life. He's that foundation. I'm, I'm sorted. But let me just gently challenge you with this question. Is Jesus the cornerstone today? Like, is he the living cornerstone of your life? I know you might have prayed a prayer years ago and you might be a Christian, but is he really the living cornerstone of your life today? Can you really say that he is the one whom your life is built upon? You know, even as Christians, we can still build our lives upon so many other things. We can build our life upon our work and get all of our identity there. We can build our life upon the things that we're good at, our skills and our talents, and let them carry us through. We can build our lives upon other people and look to them for who we are and make them the central force in our lives. And Jesus says, I I want you not just to make a commitment to me. I want you to build your life upon me. I want to be foundational to you. You think again of the role of that cornerstone. Once that's in place, every other stone in the building is measured against that cornerstone. And I just wonder whether we've ended up with a lot of Christians today for whom Jesus is kind of one of the stones in the building. And maybe he's a really important stone, but he's just still one of those stones. I think for some people, being a Christian is a bit like being a vegetarian. You know, it's, it, it might be an important thing to you. It's an important part of your life. It's a decision. It's a commitment. And it's a value. But it's not who you are. It's not your defining center. It's not the foundation of your life. I think we've got a lot of Christians like that who would say, yeah, Jesus is important to me. He's a priority for me. I believe in him. He's a part of my life. He's even an important part of my life. But Jesus would say to you, I don't want to be an important part of your life. I want to be the cornerstone of your life. I want to be the very foundation of your life, that cornerstone from which everything else is measured. Jesus wants to be that integrative center in your life, the one who makes sense of everything else, the one around whom everything else is organized and finds its place, that defining center. That defining core of your life, is that the place that Jesus holds for you today? As you think about the goals you have for your life, as you think about the dreams you have for your life and for your family, are they measured from the cornerstone? Or are they measured from something else? You think about major decisions that you have, strategic decisions, financial decisions, are they measured against the cornerstone? you involving Jesus in any way, at any point, in any thinking to do with those decisions, or are they kind of being measured off something else? Think about relationships that you're in. Maybe relationships you're thinking about getting into. Relationships you're thinking about ending. Are, they being, are those decisions based off that cornerstone? Are they being measured against that cornerstone? Or is that coming from somewhere else? And so I just want to invite you this morning, if there is some area of your life, maybe just the Holy Spirit's just prompting you now and saying, you know, there's this part of your life you still have not laid down upon that cornerstone. I want to invite you to do it today. If there's something that you're still holding on to, maybe some area of your life, your finance, your health, family, whatever it is, and, and 
you've not fully surrendered that part of your life to Jesus, I want to invite you just in the quietness of your own heart to come to Christ and lay that down upon the cornerstone and say, Jesus, this is fully yours. It's no longer mine. I don't have ownership over this anymore. I want to let it go. It's a hard thing to do, letting it go. That's what Jesus asks us to do. Let it go. Give it fully to him. If he gives it back to you, great. But release it out of your hands to him so that you might build your life fully, completely upon Jesus as that cornerstone and not just have him as one of the stones in that building of your life that you're constructing. We're going to sing a song after communion, which is called Cornerstone, and it's based on that old hymn that many of you know. Let me just finish with these words and then I'll pray. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Jesus, I just pray for each person in this room, each person listening to this message. I pray you'd, you'd challenge them with your word this morning. I pray that you'd search our hearts. I pray you'd lead us to that place where we could honestly say, on Christ alone, my hope is built. All other ground is sinking sand, Jesus. There's nothing else worth building a life upon. There's nothing else worth building our future upon. There's nothing else secure enough to carry the full weight of our lives, Jesus. Everything else is just sinking sand. Everything else is quicksand. Only you, Jesus, are the rock, the cornerstone upon whom we can place the full weight of our lives, our full trust, our full hope, and our full identity. And I want to just pray for any person here this morning, God, who you are just nudging their heart and saying, you haven't yet made me that foundational stone in your life. Maybe it's the first time they've seen that just sitting here this morning. But in this moment of conviction, you're just showing them now that you might be one ornamental rock in their life, but you're not the cornerstone. I want to pray, God, that you just free their heart now to respond to you with honesty, not with denial, not with excuses, and not with self-pity or condemnation, but with honesty, that they could acknowledge that and then turn around and run into your arms, Jesus, as the one who says, come to me and I will give you rest. Lord, let them build their life upon you from this day forward, knowing that today can be the first day of that whole new journey. Maybe even a new journey within being a Christian. Maybe they're already born again. Maybe today is a day to be born again, again, and truly begin a life that is built on you. Jesus, teach us what your word truly means and how it really applies to our lives. We pray it in your name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. 
For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.